Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. How do you help someone who is stuck on themselves? Now, I imagine there are several variations of being stuck on oneself. And the type of person that I'm talking about here is that they are very concerned about how they come across. They're concerned about how other people think about them. They are preoccupied with their thoughts about themselves because they are deeply insecure. Typically, their response to this type of being stuck on yourself is to present yourself as something that you are not. It's like trying to be perfect in an imperfect world to garner the favorable opinion of other people. Well, that is delusional. It's a delusion that will strain any relationship, not to mention how it will bind a soul to a lifetime pursuit of the unfillable love cup. They need you. They need other people. They need love. They need acceptance. They need respect. They need significance. They need appreciation. They need approval. And by all means, they don't want anyone to reject them. That's how insecurity drives them. That creates this idea of being stuck on oneself. The temptation to be stuck on oneself, by the way, it is native to all of us because of the Adamic shame that creates an internal awkwardness, motivating the hungry soul to create a personification of themselves, to convince others they are something special. When in actuality, none of us are special outside of the grace of God. Now, what I want to do over the next few moments is I want to illustrate this with my friend Mabel. I trust that this will be able to help you if there is any resonant, residual self-righteousness in you that tempts you to elevate yourself above others so you can feel special. Or if you know someone who is stuck on themselves this will help you, and I trust that this resource will be a huge benefit that you can not just learn from, but maybe this could be part of your discipleship package as you help those people who are struggling with deep insecurity, internal shame, to where they twist it uh, to a personification of themselves. So they create a dichotomy or a duality. They know who they are on the inside, but they present themselves as something else, hoping that people will like that public image. Well, Mabel is that insecure person. She has a hard time admitting she is wrong. By the way, that would be a clue of somebody who is stuck on themselves. If they have a hard time admitting their, their mistakes, their faults, their sins, their offenses, well, then that is a problem. Now, I'm talking about a Christian in this context. Because Christians have nothing to fear. We have nothing to protect. We have nothing to hide for freedom, we have been set free. We are the most liberated people on the face of the earth. Therefore, when corrections are brought to us, when we sin against other people, we are quick uh, to confess those things, to admit them, and then start walking out repentance. But Mabel is a Christian, but she has a hard time admitting that she has done anything wrong because Mabel has a high view of herself. Now, that is a form of self-righteousness. You can think of it as a person sitting on a perch, an elevation. They're looking down on all the people. That is a high view of oneself. Again, you could also call it self-righteousness, which is a greater than, better than attitude. 
This is something that she has to maintain. Again, driven by deep insecurity and this internal awkward shame that she experiences every day of her life. How she appears before others and brings self-centered commentaries about how others think about her are, are of utmost importance. And so not only does she think about herself, but she thinks about other people, especially what she believes other people are saying about her. Can you hear how delusional that is? Somebody could walk by her and they not say anything to her. And then Mabel brings an interpretation of that silent event. And of course, the interpretation will be that that individual does not like me. These are those self-centered commentaries that Mabel will map over other people because of her deep insecurity and shame. Now, many of her friends love her. They see Mabel as an example of what they want to emulate. Of course, they're looking at her personification. They're looking at her representative, that person that she has carefully edited and crafted and pushed out into the, into the public domain, hoping that people would like that person more than her. And so that is the duality that she lives in. And people love her because they do not know who she is in reality. But her family... They have a different perspective. This is one of the things about those who live the dichotomized life. You can fake out most everyone, but those who live with you on a day-to-day -day basis, they are not that impressed. They know who you are. They see you from the inside out. They not only see that public personification that you trot out so other people will adore, but they also see, well, more of the Adamic person that's closer to the reality of who you actually are. And so Mabel's family can never honestly say what they think about her because Mabel has never been humble enough to receive their observations. Can you imagine the kind of angst that that creates within this family dynamic? Can you imagine the number of eggshells that they have walked on all their lives because they see things? Not only do they see things in Mabel, but they love her. They genuinely love her, and they want to help her, but they know that they can't. Insecure people are like this. When Mabel's family brings their perspectives about her to her, she responds with anger and other emotive reactions while letting them know how they have failed her. Anger is a manipulative tactic of the insecure person who is trying to regain control of their universe. And so when they bring adverse negative commentaries about her life, things that they observe, she only knows one way, to go on the offensive. She's got to control this, and she does that through the weaponry of anger. Well... Her parents, her friends, her husband, they just back down. They stand off because what's the point? Rather than trying to understand, Mabel's insecurity forces her to turn the tables with unfounded accusations. Mabel's family has taken the position of overlooking so much because it's not worth the conflict. In Proverbs 12:15 it says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to advice 
Unfortunately, Mabel will not listen to any advice whatsoever. I'm not sure if you have anyone like this in your life, but if you do, you feel the tension in your own soul. Because you love them, you want to help them, you see things that they are doing, and you struggle with, should I overlook this or should I bring this to their attention? But through history and by experience, you know, because this person is stuck on themselves, that if you bring it up, there's a 99% chance that it will not go right. Mabel's self-righteousness has had an even more detrimental effect on her husband, Biff. They've only been married for a few years. Now, Biff has his sin problems, and as you might imagine, Mabel has not been shy about reminding him of where he has failed and how he has hurt her, and that's typically how it's going to go. Nobody can say anything to her because she's stuck on herself, insecure, self-righteous, elevated above the masses, looking down on them so that she can, in her delusional state, feel better about herself. But when anyone else sins against her, she expresses her disappointment, which she does often with Biff, through her nagging, criticism, and consistent demeaning attitude. Recently, Mabel told him, if he continued sinning, that she would leave him. And so Biff came to counseling, trying to work through this problem in their marriage. Of course, Mabel would not come with him, which is not an ideal setting for counseling. Whenever a married couple needs counseling, as in this situation, but only one of them shows up to receive that counseling, then it's going to be hard for it to go well, because it takes two to tango, as they say. But Biff has been trying to walk out his repentance in humility, and it appears from many objective sources that he is doing well with this process. And then recently, he said in counseling, I don't want to sin anymore. I'm working hard not to. I have spent more time in prayer than at any other time in my life. I've been reading my Bible more than ever. I've set up accountability partners to help guard my heart against falling back into sin. This is a wonderful list, and this is something that we should mentally take note of. If we want to walk out repentance, or if we want to keep from those places where we will eventually have to repent, then reading our Bible more and praying more and setting up accountability partners to guard against falling into those traps is wisdom. And Biff is operating in wisdom. But he continues to say, even so, I know there will be times when I will fall. I don't want to do this. And I'm not making excuses, but I'm unsure I can live a life of perfection, which Mabel is asking me to do. Now, there is an unrealistic expectation that Mabel is placing on him, and Biff is just honestly talking about it. He's not slandering her. He's not gossiping her about her, but he is asking for help because he has enough self-awareness to know that he is not Christ. He will not live a perfect life. He will fail. Now, this is a warning for all of us. If we do not create this environment of grace in our home and in our relationships, then we will not give people room to wobble. And if we don't give them room to wobble, we will set them up with another temptation. And that temptation will be to conceal the truth. And that's what Biff is about to say. He says, I know that it's wrong to try to hide things from Mabel, but there has been this temptation to lie to Mabel when she asks me if I have sinned. 
Do you know what I mean? So when she asked, how's it going, Biff? What am I to say? Now, this is a thing, and it would probably be wise for many of us to make a note of this, uh, how we can put pressure on the other person not to make any mistakes. And then we're going to create two problems, whatever the original tension and trouble is within the relationship. But if we put that kind of pressure on the other person where they cannot wobble at all, well, then they will be tempted to lie, and that's only going to complicate the relationship. And I know sometimes when people have been hurt one too many times, they will say, I cannot take it anymore, or I will not take it anymore. And they will unwittingly put that kind of pressure on the other individual. Now, I know that there's wisdom here, and I am not making a case for anybody to just sin willy-nilly. But in context of what's going on here in this scenario with Biff and Mabel, Biff is honestly trying to walk out repentance. He wants to do the right thing, praying more, reading his Bible more, set up accountability partners. He is in counseling. He's doing the right things. But there is an unrealistic expectation placed on him to be perfect, and he intuitively knows that he cannot do that. And so there are many layers and concerns related to this case study with Mabel. Now, what I'm going to do here, because there's so many angles, I'm only going to interact with one of the problems that is presented, and that is Mabel's self-righteousness, that greater-than-better-than attitude. Honestly, if she addresses this and walks out genuine, genuine repentance of this self-righteous spirit that she has, it will almost take out all of her other sins. Self-righteousness is part of the brokenness that comes with being born in Adam. I mean, along with unbelief and shame, guilt, fear, craving for comfort, a desire to be in control— I mean, those are some of the sins that came in the Adamic package. There is also a compulsion to think well of ourselves. All of these are parts of who we are as sinful humans. These things are objectively Mabel's sin list. In fact, what you will find is that self-righteousness is tied to every one of these in this list that I gave you. It's tied to her unbelief, shame guilt, fear, craving for comfort, a desire to be in control, and a compulsion to think well of ourselves. Now, our culture, when it comes to self-righteousness, they don't have that term. They don't use that term. They have something else. It's called the self-esteem, or what I call the self-esteem gospel. They perpetuate self-righteousness through their self-esteem gospel. Those who do not want to submit to the Lord seek other means to feel good about themselves, which typically has something to do with being superior to others within the Christian framework that is self-righteousness. Within the cultural framework that is self-esteem, esteeming yourselves more than others. And so self-righteousness and self-esteem, it elevates yourself above other people, even if the other person is yourself. Have you ever thought about that? Let me explain. Self-righteous people look down on others. I think most people know that intuitively about self-righteousness. But 
self-righteous people look down on themselves, the things that they do not like about themselves. Maybe you can think of it this way. Let's say that I have an out-of-body experience, that I am self-righteous, and there might not be any argumentation to that, but that aside, let's say I'm self-righteous. Well, part of being self-righteous is having a greater than, better than attitude. And if you know that you're not that swell, then there will be things about you that you do not like. And so you will see that person that you do not like way down there somewhere. And you've elevated yourself above that individual that you do not like, which happens to be you. And you want to live in this delusional world, this personification, this representative of yourself. And so I am living in the delusional world, this self-righteous, elevated, greater than, better than attitude. And I'm better than other people. And I'm better than that person that I do not like, which is me. And so that's two forms of self-righteousness, a person looking down on others and a person looking down on that, those things that they disdain about themselves. We all have enough self-awareness to know that we are not perfect. Now, there is a solution for that, but Mabel is not seeking the solution, who is Christ. What she is doing is that she's creating her own solutions. She's elevating herself. She has her own righteousness. She will not take or practically apply the righteousness of Christ. Something within us motivates us to be better than the person that we know ourselves to be. Therefore, we mask our flaws while promoting our preferred qualities. And that is exactly what Mabel is doing. And that's why she looks down on herself and she lives inside this personified universe that she has created. Of course, this problem implodes inside of anyone as they sabotage their inner selves because they're denying the truth. They're exchanging the truth for a lie. They're compromising their conscience, dulling their conscience because they will not listen to the truth about themselves. And so as they elevate themselves above others and themselves, they will eventually implode because you can't live in an ongoing delusional state. This attitude of self-elevation is what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. Becoming a Christian does not insulate you from that sin. And that's why Mabel, being a Christian, she has received the alien righteousness of Christ. But her functional living out of the Christian life, that is the problem. In Matthew 6, 1, talking about the Pharisees, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So maybe you could say that in some form that Mabel is a version of a New Testament Pharisee. Though we may have accepted the righteousness of Christ as our own, the temptation is to smuggle our righteousness into our lives to build a reputation that can feed our desire for self-glory. The humble Christian is intuitively familiar with this problem. I mean, he wants to hear the truth, the humble Christian. He knows what's happening in his soul. He understands our Adamic complexity. And he's not afraid to delve into the darkness and try to understand and try to untangle, basically to repent. Only a self-righteous person would be offended if someone told him that they were self-righteous. 
You go to a humble person and say, you know, that appeared to be a little bit self-righteous. Well, they will say, oh, please tell me more. I did not know that. Thank you so much for bringing that observation because as a pattern, they are not self-righteous. And maybe the individual saw an episodic event of self-righteousness, but because the characterization of this person is humility, they will receive it. But you bring that same correction or observation to a self-righteous person who is not self-righteous in an episodic way, but this is a characterization. This is a habituation, a pattern in their lives. Their high opinion of themselves would motivate them to reject any negative assessment, even if the evaluation were accurate. Confronting the elevated soul is one of the things that makes caring for the self-righteous person so challenging. Their high view of themselves compels them to resist the analysis. And so there is a polarization here. You love them. You want to help them. You see something wrong with them. You bring an observation to them. But their self-righteousness creates a force field that repels you from them. And if you keep coming, they will retaliate just like Mabel did when her family tries to bring, and Biff tries to bring observations to her, even with the best intentions. This elevated person would not receive your care, or if they heard it, they would, they would see it as inaccurate, as harsh, unkind. That's a worldview that makes Paul's self-analysis counterintuitive. When you think about how Paul thought about himself, it is miles from how Mabel thinks about herself. Paul was clear-headed regarding his honest, sober, and biblical self-assessment. You can read it in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 and 16. As you hear this, I want you to hear the juxtaposition of two polar opposites. Paul said the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Full stop. Now let's transition. Here's the juxtaposition. But I have received mercy. He's holding two antithetical things in his hands or in his mind. He's holding them at the same time, and there is not a conflict. Actually, there is a symmetry. There has to be bad news without the good news. If you don't know the bad news, you'll never receive the good news. And so Paul can talk about the bad and the good news at the same time and not wallow in some kind of worm theology. He understood and humbly lived in the antithetical juxtaposition of his total depravity and Christ's impeccable righteousness. He was free to drop his denials and self-defenses while admitting the more accurate dimensions of his life. Here's a good quote by Tim Keller, and I trust it will bless you as much as it has blessed me. Not only blessing you, but I hope that it will set the captive free. This is something that Mabel really needs to wrestle with. Tim Keller said, The gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they are accepted and righteous. That's that antithetical juxtaposition that Paul was talking about in First Timothy. So we can say, Tim Keller says, 
that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. Now, in that quote by Tim Keller is actually the solution to the problem. Mabel does not see the sinful side of herself as something to talk about, to bring into the light. No, she looks down on that person, and she will by no means step down to that level, which is also called humility. But Tim Keller is giving us the answer, and the answer is the gospel. And the gospel is tied to two big pillars. One is there's bad news and there's good news. Jesus did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And Mabel has to come to that place in her life where she recognizes what everybody knows about her. Now, in one sense, she already knows that. And so maybe the better, better thing to say here is that she needs to confess it. She needs to admit it to her most intimate friends and let them know that she has been playing a charade. Self-righteous people have not experienced this practical liberation to think about or present themselves as Paul considered himself and how he lived before others. Self-righteous people continue to guard, protect, justify on one side, while being defensively and fearfully critical, negative, arrogant, on the other side. And that is exactly what Mabel is doing. She is stuck on herself. If you bring any critique to this person, you will experience some form of anger that will put you down while elevating them over you. One of the issues, one of the core issues, there are several planks here, and Mabel's practical theology, self-righteousness is what I've been interacting with. But there's another one here called the fear of man. As we read in Proverbs 29:25, the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The companion sin that hangs out with the self-righteous soul is the fear of others. And you may not have known that label, uh, but you see it all up in Mabel's business. In all of her self-righteousness, you see that she is afraid of others. She doesn't want their correction. She cannot receive it or will not receive it. And so fear of others is actually a motivator that prompts her to be self-righteous. Fear of others is actually pumping her up and elevating her because that is her solution to the fear that she carries. And she's afraid of what other people think about her or what they say about her or how she thinks they think about her. The fear of man is a biblical term, but culturally it's called codependency. I am codependent. I need you. I need you to love me. Accept me. Please don't reject me. Another term in the culture is insecurity. And then another one is people-pleasing. Mabel is enslaved. 
and bound by the opinions of other people. I mean, the words that you say to her will be the proverbial thumbs up or it will be the thumbs down. People have that kind of power over her. And if you approve her, she will be your friend. If you disapprove her, she will not be your friend or she will lash out at you so many times to where she trains you not to say anything critical about her. She struggles with the fear of man. And when you bring those critical observations to her, when she's in her lofty tower, she's not going to come down. She has to live in the delusion. If Mabel perceives your disapproval, whether founded or not, that's not the point at this point, she will be your enemy. She hopes you will think about her in the way that she thinks about herself, which is a high view of herself. She doesn't want you to think about her the way she sees that other person in her life, herself. She doesn't want you to see that individual. That's why she has to keep up the facade. She does not understand and cannot enjoy how the only opinion in the room that should matter to her is God's opinion of her. And sadly, God's opinion of her does not control her. If you go back to the Tim Keller quote, you will recognize that, that we are more loved than we could ever be. Now, one of the things that Mabel's doing here is breaking the great commandment. You will put no other gods before me. But she is doing that time and time again. There is something in her practical theology that says that what God offers is not good enough. Therefore, I have to self-generate my righteousness and I'm dependent upon other people to keep me elevated, as elevated as I believe that I need to be. The Lord's thoughts about Mabel as experienced through the application of Christ's righteousness, that should be her controlling identity. She is still under the influence of others. Will you accept me? Please don't reject me. What do you think about me? Her thoughts are controlling. When she thinks about family and friends and is creating or had created an enslaved mindset. Mabel hopes others will find a similar view of herself that she has of herself. Please like me the way I love me. Please be stuck on me the way that I'm stuck on me. The primary way she can influence those opinions is through self-promotion, which is the essence of self-righteousness. A person trapped by the fear of others has many symptoms that they employ to cope with their slavery. Now, I want to share with you a few of the symptoms that are the outworking of the fear of man. Fear of man is what's operative in the heart, but the way it looks in the behavior, well, that is something else. Now, I want to give you a list of 15 or so things, and if any of these things represent you, let's say a majority report, well, then that means that you do struggle with the fear of man, and that's something that you want to address. For those of you who are caring for others and you think you might have a person like Mabel, that you are discipling, then this list will help you uh, to identify if that is such a person. And so with fear of man as the heart of the problem, uh, you'll see certain things uh, in their behaviors, which I'm calling symptoms. For example, number one, oversleeping. Now, what I mean by that is that Mabel will be so fearful to face her day or to face an individual. Let's say that her boss said, 
I want to have a meeting with you tomorrow. Uh, there's some things that I've observed about you, and I want to bring those to your attention, some things that you need to work on. Well, that will devastate M Mabel because her thoughts will be wrapped around what those things might be, and she'll be uploading the answers to those things all day long, and it will wear her thin. She'll go to bed at night, and then... She'll be sluggish in the morning. One, she won't sleep well, but two, she'll not want to get out of bed because she doesn't want to meet that appointment. And you'll find with a lot of people who struggle with fear of man that they'll have oversleeping as one of the symptoms. Now, that does not mean that everybody that oversleeps as a pattern that they struggle with fear of man, but it can be one of the characteristics of one who does. Number two is overeating. This is swapping idols. In order, it's an escape is what it is. Uh, it is trying to, uh, comfort food maybe would be a way that you would think about it. The Bible uh, would say gluttonous, uh, overeating, a lack of self-control. But they're doing that to feel better about themselves. Number three, too much talking. Now, this is an offensive measure, meaning being on the offense, that they are, if a person can, if a fear of man person can talk all the time, then well, the other person is not going to be able to get a word in edgewise, and therefore they will not hear that correction that they may be bracing themselves to hear. And it seems counterintuitive that a person who is insecure, like Mabel in fear of man, uh, that they would be doing too much talking or too much laughing. Well, uh, that's the personification of Mabel. That's that elevated person. Uh, the truth is Mabel is deeply insecure and that she's not a big talker. But when you live in the delusion, you have to learn the tactics to maintain that delusion. And talking too much is an offensive measure to keep you moving forward so that you don't hear the rebukes of other people. Number four, easily embarrassed. And I think that would make sense on the face of it. Number five, can't be transparent with others, or maybe it should say won't be transparent with others, and that one too should be obvious as well. Number six, is frustrated and discontented. Now, I talked about the frustration earlier as Mabel lashed out at her, her family. She lashes out at Biff. But the frustration also speaks to an internal discontentment. And, well, it's obvious based on what I've said thus far that she is discontented. She has no shalom in the soul, but her soul has a lot of noise in it. Number seven, avoidance of others. That ties a little bit to oversleeping. I'm going to oversleep. That will allow me to avoid the thing that I don't want to attend at the morning meeting with my boss. Number eight, self-consciousness. Number nine, can't handle rejection well. Makes sense. Number 10 is inflexible. Now, what I mean by that is that they make a decision and they recognize that the decision was wrong, but they're not going to change their mind because to change their mind means they made a mistake. And that person can never admit that they made a mistake. And so you'll have a stubborn, inflexible person. It will be very hard to pry a mistake out of that individual. Number 11, Mabel has to be in control. Uh, you could tie that to the talking too much I mentioned earlier. Uh, it keeps her in control of the conversation. And if she can stay in control on top, elevated, then she is just fine. Being out of control is a weakness. It creates a weakness, a vulnerability. 
and insecurity. And by the way, that is exactly the position that we should take. Because what we're talking about here is self-reliance. The person who has to be in control all the time is leaning to, into their self-reliance, and they're not trusting God. They're not God-reliant. And obviously, Mabel needs to be God-reliant, meaning that she can shut her mouth meaning that she can admit that she's wrong, meaning that she doesn't have to be in control, and that she can learn to rely on him who raises the dead rather than relying on herself. Number 12, afraid of failure. Obvious reasons. By the way, that ties to inflexibility. Exaggeration. Kind of makes sense. Again, that keeps the personification inflated uh, as she brags on this, that, or the other. Number uh, 14, uh, she is reactionary and defensive, competitive with others. Competitive with others, uh, that's that elevated. I can't lose. I have to win. I have to be on top. I have to be sitting on my perch. Name dropping, uh, similar to exaggeration, must have the last word. I see this a lot with people in like forum posting in our private community here at Life Over Coffee. Every now and then you'll get an insecure person and they have to say the last thing. And when I recognize that they are struggling with fear of man, I let them say the right uh, last thing because if I come back and respond to them on the forum, they're going to come back. And then if I come back, they're going to come back, and we're going to be in an unending tennis match, and I'll not get anything done. But the person who is insecure has to have the last word. That, that's the offensive. They always have to be moving in that direction. It's hard for them to receive and just let it be. Struggle, uh, struggle with oversensitivity. And then confronting people corporately but not personally. Now, you'll see that on socials regularly. Fear man people will say things in the public space because they don't have enough gumption, enough courage, enough backbone, enough Christian etiquette, Christian deportment, enough humility. And there's a long list here, but they don't have any of those things. And so they say it aloud in a public space, but they would not meet you in a private space and bring that kind of correction to you. Now, it would be good to go through that list and to think about it. And again, if the majority of these things apply to you or someone you know, well, that is a problem. The quickest and most straight way, a straightforward way to assess a self-righteous person bound to the fear of others is to listen to them. That's really the best way. And if you have these categories that I just laid out for you and have this understanding of self-righteousness and this personification, this representative, uh, and how they interact, then what you want to do is you want to look for clues as, as they talk. How do they talk to others? And again, that list had a lot of statements about how, it talked, uh, how a fear of man person would talk to others. How do they respond to others? How do they talk about others? I didn't mention gossip, but gossip is, is a characteristic of a self-righteous person. An insecure, self-righteous person will gossip because gossip is coming from that elevated perch. You don't gossip about people unless you can look down on them. 
And so Mabel would be prone to gossip, as you might imagine. Now, what I want to do here is to share a few questions that have helped me to assess my lingering Adamic self-righteousness. Because I'm not even I'm not suggesting, and I trust you know that, those who follow this ministry, you do know this, that the things, the content that I produce uh, are really my devotionals. It's how I think about me and how I think about life and as I work out these things in my life. And so what I'm sharing here about my fictional character, Mabel, well, these are things that I struggle with too, to a degree. And so I write this way so that I can wrestle with these things. And of course, I want to share a few uh, questions and you can answer them too. You can come along with me and answer these questions and maybe they will serve you as well. Am I quick to acknowledge my sins to the right people, not blabbing them to everybody, not putting them out on socials? But will I acknowledge my sins to anyone? Two, am I tentative about acknowledging the sins of others? I should be. I should be quick to acknowledge mine and tentative to acknowledge the sins of others. Number three, can I receive critique? Number four, do I actively pursue others for correction? Now, this has to be a habit. Parents should be going to their children. When their children are old enough and mature enough, these have to be good faith conversations. But when your children are old enough and mature enough, as an example, parents should be asking their children, how can I change? Uh, what observations have you made about me? What are some, how can I serve you more effectively? Obviously, husbands and wives should be doing this with each other, but parents should, do, uh, should as well at the appropriate time. Now, I want to share a few more diagnostic questions that I have benefited from, and I hope that they will help you to discern any self-righteousness that may be present in you, not judging. All of these questions that I'm going to ask are closed-ended, and I recognize that. And so what you would need to do if you're working through this as your own list, or if you're helping someone, you want them to explain the yes or no answers that they supply. So here you go, number one. Have you ever been tempted to critique or judge another person, another group, another church sinfully? Ever done that? Yes or no, please explain. Number two, how do you usually respond to those who do not do things according to your preferences? We can't have preferences that are so blooming elevated and their preferences. You'll see this in church all the time. We should have this carpet, this singer, this preacher, this whatever it is, and they all fit within the realm of preferences. And we can be unguarded in those moments. And if we're not careful, our self-righteousness will lash out on somebody. Number three, do you focus on what you do correctly and what others may do incorrectly? Number four, how do you think critically about others living out secondary preferences differently. And so you meet a friend and, and he does something that you would not do or you don't do. Maybe they practice Halloween and, and you don't. Maybe they practice Christmas and you don't. Maybe they practice Valentine's Day and you don't. I'm going with the holidays on this one. Uh, maybe they watch sports, you don't. Maybe they have a TV, you don't. Maybe they do what and you don't. And it's a preference. How do you think 
uh, how do you think about them? Do you think critically about them? Number five, do you secretly feel smug because God has delivered you from some of the sins that you see in others? That's a big one. The things that I have learned and the things that I have accomplished in 40 years of being a Christian, I map over you who have been a Christian for six weeks, and you should be over it by now. Do you secretly feel smug because God has delivered you? Do you become impatient or frustrated when you think about those who do not do things your way? You see, the humble person is feisty about taking their soul to task, and they would see these questions as opportunities to continue the lifelong transformation into Christ-likeness. Maybe that is the clue for anyone listening to this, that see whether they're self-righteous or not. They're not taking the time to think through this, and they give impulsive responses as though this is not me. It would be good to share those questions with a friend, a spouse, with your parent or a parent with a child, uh, an adult child, and, and walk through these things because the feisty person will do that. They're humble, and they want to take their soul to task because it's not about them. They want to grow up into mature Christ-likeness. That attitude is a core characteristic of the humble person, a humility that seeks critique, even if the person bringing the evaluation does not present the evaluation correctly. And that is what you're going to find, by the way. Imperfect people cannot correct imperfect people correctly. There'll always be an element of something wrong with how they corrected you, and this is where we have to guard our hearts because the humble person will find that needle in a haystack of miscorrection. The proud person will focus on how they didn't say it right, how they didn't, there was a jot or a tittle missing, or it wasn't exactly like that, and they will focus on that. Now, maybe there is a time to focus on that because it wasn't presented correctly, but that's not the first order of business for the humble person. They want to know what's wrong with them and how they can grow because their friend has come to them and they, they have laid it out for them. Maybe a week later, they'll say, hey, you know, when you brought that to me the other week, I appreciate it so much. It's helped me to grow, and I've been responding this way and that way and the other way. And then after a nice warm conversation, you say, oh, and by the way, um, did you have to tie it to a spear and toss it at me? <laughs> uh, or this, what you said, was not right. And so you can cover all the bases, but there is a sequence here. And like an investigative reporter, the humble soul will figure out those bits and pieces of truth that they can apply to their lives. Like a desert wanderer searching for water, they see God's hand in corrective measures. Why? Because they want to change. Now, Mabel may want to change, but her desire to change is not greater than her fear, her self-righteousness coming down from that lofty perch. Mabel is in bondage to sin. Her two controlling sins are self-righteousness and the fear of man, as I have addressed here. And they do stack on top of each other. Self-righteousness will be what you will see coming out of her, and fear of man will be the fuel that will keep her pumped up. Mabel needs a friend willing to come alongside her in a permanent, persevering, and persuasive way. Her problems are not as much about amputation. You remember what Jesus said in 529 and 30? In Matthew, if your hand offends you, cut it off. I 
fins you, uh, pluck it out. There are some amputatable things that she can do. There's some things that she needs to cut out of her life, but that's not the big issue. That's not the deeper issue. The deeper issue is a mortification issue. And you'll see Paul talking about that in 8.13 of Romans, that we need to mortify. And so both of these are in play, mortification and amputation, but mortification will be the long process of removing the vitality from the sins that have gripped her heart. Mortification is an old word. I understand that. And I was talking to a young man recently, and I mentioned this to him. And he said, when I think about mortification, I think about mortifying, like she was mortifying. Well, actually, that is correct. To be mortified is to be like dead. It has a deadening quality that you see. The person who's mortified, it's like they were caught in their tracks. They were stopped in their tracks. They were made dead. That's that's a way of describing mortification. It's taking the vitality, the strength out. The strength left her when she was mortifying. And we want to take the strength out of that sin. And so Mabel's restoration, it will not be a quick fix. Not mortification, because that takes time. If it took her multiple decades, which it did, uh, to create this habituation, it's going to take a while. Not multiple decades, but it's going to take a while. It will not be a quick fix, is what I'm saying. She must know that this kind of friend who will be persevering, who will be uh, permanent, who will be persuasive, that this kind of friend will walk with her through the thick and thin of her junk. Her friend must be for her, have affection for her, love her. That's a necessity. It's also a necessity why counseling would not be the best option for Mabel. You see, biblical counseling is an artificial context that anticipates change within a temporal construct and time frame. No, we can't squeeze Mabel into a temporal construct and time frame. She needs a long-term friend. Mabel doesn't need a therapist. She needs a co-laboring friend willing to put up with her and her game playing. This friend would set up multiple contexts to engage and interact with her, not just for discipling. Oh, they will do that. They will meet at the coffee shop and do life over coffee and talk about her fear of man and self-righteousness. But they will do other things as well. Sometimes you need fun and games. You need a long runway to interact with a person like Mabel because of the high sensitivity. And if every time you meet with her and you bring up this, it's going to wear you and her out. And so you want to create that long runway. Mabel's sin did not sprout up in the past few months. Her sin patterns have long roots reaching back into her childhood. And it will take a lot of competence and compassion and courage and continuity to walk with her through the thick weeds that have entangled her soul. As a woman with the world's worst sunburn, you cannot bring quick, decisive care to her. And that's what Mabel's like. That's what you will find with all hypersensitive people. They have the world's worst sunburn. And you know that if you touch her, you will hurt her. But you must touch her. And I put that in air quotes. And after you touch her, after you care for her, disciple her, she'll be hurt. You'll hurt her because she has the world's worst sunburn. These people are just like that. And by the way, she will hurt you in return when you put that lotion on her shoulders. And so it will be a relationship cycle that the disciple maker will have to endure. There is no way around this in inevitability. 
the process of cooperating with the Lord in the transformation of her soul, it will be painstakingly complex and lengthy. More than likely, you will become frustrated with her, which is why you must heed Paul's advice in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. He says, if anyone like Mabel, I insert that, caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, that you start sending your brains out. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there are, those are a few thoughts to help a person who is stuck on herself. And the good news is that she has a local church, Mabel does, and, a caring, and caring disciple makers, people who will come alongside her for the long haul. They will be able to bring long-term care to her while also helping Biff, remember Biff, to continue to mature through his issues. He has to walk through this big one. He can't lie to Mabel, and so they, they need to work that out. In time, within the context of a loving community, this couple should receive the help that they need. Now, what about you? In what ways are you like Mabel? Here's a clue how to answer that question. All of us are. There are ways in which I am like Mabel. Nobody should climb up on Mabel's perch, live in a delusional world, and think that they're not like Mabel. That would be ironic. Do you have a community of friends who speak into your life, even correcting you? Do you make it easy for them? Or are they like Mabel's family and Mabel's husband, always on guard, always unsure if it's safe to bring up something, always walking on eggshells? And if you want to, I would encourage you to take the questions that I asked you earlier and work through them. That would be a wonderful assignment for all of us. Personally, I have done that. But also for those of you, when you're caring for someone, those would be wonderful questions to work through as well. Now, if you want more help, because dealing with self-righteousness and dealing uh, with fear of man... Uh, you'll need more tools. You'll need more resources. And so what I would recommend is that you go to lifeovercoffee.com. Fear of man and self-righteousness, those are two of the more common themes that I've written on since 2008. And I have scores upon scores of resources at lifeovercoffee.com. And they're all free to you, by the way. They are. And so all you have to do is hit the search feature at the uh, top right-hand corner of our coffee shop. And you could type self-righteousness, the fear of man, opinions of others, insecurity, uh, some of the key words that you've heard me talk about over the last few minutes. And if you type them in, uh, you'll find a lot of resources, I promise you. And it would take you months. And, and so we're not, I'm not leaving you with just this treatment of this problem because the problem is too deep. It is a too long-standing there are complexities here, and it's going to take work uh, to help Mabel or your friend or yourself to work through it. But what I'm saying here is that we have the resources to be able to do that. By the way, if you want, one of the things that has been very helpful for a lot of people uh, that are familiar with our ministry is that they get uh, my book, Change Me, The Ultimate Life Change Handbook. And I would encourage you, you can get this on Amazon or you can get it from our store. You can go to our store in our coffee shop. 
and you can get it at lifeovercoffee.com. But I would encourage you to get it, Change Me, and just type Change Me, Rick Thomas, in Amazon. Get this book and start reading it. At the end of every chapter, there will be a call to actions, CTAs. There will be questions for you to answer. That's the way I write all of my books. I put questions at the end of them because I, I'm not writing some uh, fictional account, some love story. Uh, th these are tools. These are resources that will help any individual change. Now, if you want to get a full transcript of what I just shared with you, then I would encourage you to go to lifeovercoffee.com and just type in the word stuck because that's a kind of a unique word. And that's what you're looking for when you search for things, the unique word or the unique phrase. But in this case, stuck will get the job done because that's an unusual word. And you'll get a full transcript of everything that I just shared with you. It's free. It's my gift to you. And you're welcome to have it. Uh, there'll also be a video there that you can have as well as a podcast. There's an infographic that I did not mention, but it's embedded here as well. And then there are a whole lot of hyperlinks that will take you throughout our coffee shop and it will create these pathways that will help you to work through this most significant problem. And so if you are somewhat as serious about your sin as God is, we can never be as serious as he is about it. But if we're super serious about our sin, then we will do what we have to do to work through it. And if you're in that place at this point in your life, maybe this resource and all the hyperlinks and the other things that we have here at Life Over Coffee would be a benefit to you. Now, for those of you who want to go a little deeper uh, in training and learning how to help other people, I would encourage you to check out our Mastermind program. We have a fully online, uh, we call it the Mastermind program. It's a two to three year course. Some people cram it into six, maybe seven. Don't recommend that. That's not how you learn. Uh, but we have an all-online course, and you can do it in your home. Uh, this course is supervised, and you can take our supervised course. And so when you turn in your assignments, you get responses back. And there's a lot of red ink that you get back, and it will help you to grow and mature. And so if you would like a, a coach, a mentor, a, an educator, a team of them, then I would encourage you to come to lifeovercoffee.com and then just check out our mastermind program. You'll find other things here as well. But I did want to let you know about that in addition to Change Me, the book, uh, because it will bless you. These tools are, are helpful. And so you can go the resource route with our articles uh, and those are excellent. They become just wonderful tools in anybody's toolbox. Uh, you can expand that and get the book. And then for those who are in a good season of life right now where you want some intensive training in biblical counseling, discipleship, I highly encourage you uh, to check out the Mastermind program. How do you help a person who is stuck on herself? Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.